Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Rabbi Maurice, and my pronouns are he, him. In this episode, we'll discuss Monday Thursday, which this year falls on April 14th. We have two content notes for you during this episode. We talk about Christian anti-Semitism when discussing the deep dive, and there's a brief conversation of the violence and gore involved in the crucifixion when we talk about the second reading. Check out the episode descriptions for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. So for this episode, we are excited to have Rabbi Maurice Applebaum with us for our deep dive into Passover. And he is a Association of Clinical Pastoral Education Certified Educator and a Modern Orthodox Rabbi. He serves as the ACPE Certified Educator for Spiritual Health at Emory Healthcare's online program SHOP which stands for Spiritual Health Online Program, and as the chaplaincy educator at Morristown Medical Center, Atlantic Health Systems Flagship Hospital in New Jersey. Maurice received ordination from YCT, a modern Orthodox rabbinical school, and served as rabbi of Congregation Ahavis Israel, the Greenpoint Shoal in uh, Brooklyn for 10 years. Thank you for that lovely Welcome. introduction. I'm excited to be here with you. We are thrilled to have you. Absolutely. Yes. I'm especially excited for our listeners. Maurice and I were in CPE together apparently 12 years ago now. Um, so it is good to be No, I think I overestimated. I know it was the summer of 2011. That would make it 11. Oh, yes. About, almost 11. So 11 years. Almost 11 years ago. So it is. The good concept to... of being an adult for that long still feels uncomfortable to me. That is real. I was still in school. It was an intense summer. (laughs) It was. It was a very intense summer. It was. I enjoyed a lot of that summer. But so we are excited to have you with us for Passover, which is something that is celebrated in the Jewish tradition and not in the Christian tradition. Um, Emphasis on the not in the Christian tradition for our listeners who didn't know that. Um, And we can get more into that later, but similar to things like the Christian Holy Week, Passover and most Jewish holidays, I think, actually change their dates when it comes to how they line up with our like 12 month, 365 day calendar that we use in the U.S. Can you tell us how it's calculated? Yes, this is actually super confusing. And for anyone (laughs) who who has colleagues uh, work colleagues, let's say, and they say, oh, Rosh Hashanah falls out on a Monday, Tuesday this year, and then and in the beginning of September, and then sometimes it switches to the end of September, and it's on a Thursday, Friday, and you're like totally confused. Nothing ever makes sense, and the same thing applies to Passover as well. Here's why and what happens. So basically, there are two frameworks. Um, there's the, the one that we are all used to, 12-month solar calendar. And the solar calendar mm-hmm. essentially measures how long it takes our Earth to rotate around the sun. Then you have, and that's often the way the calendar that, from my understanding, is not only our our calendar, but I think, you'll correct me perhaps, many Christians use this calendar as the basic structure for holidays, right? December 25th is always December 25th, is always December 25th, which is Christmas. Yes, Yes. unless you're going by the Orthodox Christian calendar. Right, totally different volume, yes. But yes, aside from Orthodox Christians, yeah. Our Muslim siblings, they go by the lunar calendar. And for them, it's the rotation of the moon around the earth. 
and it is 12 months. If you actually calculate the number of days in each of these calendars, the solar calendar is 365 and a half and a quarter and change, <laughs> which is 365, <laughs> and the lunar calendar is 354. Doing a little back of the envelope math, 365 minus 354 gives you 11 days. So every year, the lunar calendar will be 11 days short and start 11 days earlier, which is why, if you notice, Ramadan always is 11 days earlier than it was the year before. So now it's mm -hmm. coming very soon, right? A few years ago, it was in the summer, which is really rough. And a few years from now, it'll keep rolling early, earlier and earlier in the calendar year. So it'll be in the winter, which will be a much nicer and more pleasant Ramadan for them. So what about us? Right, you asked about the Jewish people. So we are actually a hybrid not exactly either. Oh. So we are definitely focused on a lunar calendar. It is a 12 month calendar um, and it goes by the moon. Each month is 29 or 30 days. Why? Because the rotation of the, the moon around the earth is 29 and a half days. So some months are 30, some mm. months are 29, make it work. However, we would have the same problem as Muslims do with the early, they, it's not a problem for them, but it's a, it would be a problem for us. Why? Because each of our holidays need to be in certain seasons, right? The text mm. that uh, we talk about for Passover, for example, and most quintessentially, is that it is a springtime holiday. And many of the holidays we celebrate are rooted in agricultural festivals as well. So you can't have a springtime holiday in the winter. You can't have a harvest season of Sukkot. It's supposed to be in the beginning of fall, somehow end up in the middle of the summer or in the middle of the spring or the winter before. Mm -hmm. You just can't have that. So you have to have a balance. So what we, what our calendar does is every few years, basically like um, it's seven times every 19 years, there's a system to it. Um, we And this year actually is a leap year. Uh, we add an extra month. Ooh. There's an extra month that we add in. So we have 13 months in that year. And this year is one of those years. So right now uh, we are finishing up the second month of Adar. And um, it is in Jewish months, seven months away from the Rosh Hashanah season, right? Instead of six. So we had an extra one, because why? It was getting too early in the cycle. It was gonna start hitting into early March, February, which is not okay. It needs to be in the spring. Passover is about the spring, it's about renewal. Um, and if it's not in the spring, that's a big problem. So we have this internal cycle that always rotates. So why is it so confusing? Because it always changes. It always changes. <laughs> it doesn't change for us. Like I can tell you right now, in a hundred years from now, when Passover is gonna be but relative to the stable system of the solar calendar, it's very confusing. So it sounds to me like the Jewish calendar was designed by math nerds. It's designed by math <laughs> nerds. I think that would be a great, uh, yes. You can call my rabbis super math nerds. Excellent. <laughs> nice. So when is it this year in 2022? This year, Passover falls out very soon. It's going to start actually on the very eve of Good Friday there is this confluence of our times together that will take place. So our first Passover Seder will be Friday night, the night of Good Friday, for many Christians to celebrate on that particular day. Which this year also happens to be April 15th. So well, it happens to be April 15th, but it is always the 15th of Nisan. Yes. That day never changes, but Ooh. it just happens to be that that doesn't line up always with April 15th. Yes. Yeah. But Americans have an extra layer of tension added to our yeah, lives. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, there are, there are um, 
a fair number of Jewish accountants that I'm familiar with, and uh, this season is always challenging for them because they're not only preparing for Passover, which is an extremely stressful holiday to prepare for, but they're also filing people's taxes. So just the combination makes it quite challenging. I have to imagine. Yeah. Uh, so many Christians, unfortunately, aren't very familiar with how Passover is celebrated in modern-day Jewish homes and communities. We hear historical accounts sometimes, but not so much with uh, modern-day. Uh, could you tell us a bit about how that works? Happily, yes. So, um, the modern form of uh, the holiday really really begins... <laughs> depends how focused and obsessive and neurotic your family members are, right? So, depending on how <laughs> intense they might be, it will start month or more before in my home my lovely wife has already rationed out exactly how many pasta boxes we have from two or three weeks ago Ooh. to ensure that we use up all of our pasta in time for passover to ensure that we get rid of all of our items that are filled with leaven uh, and grain and items that could be that have come in contact with water and may have risen so the bulk of the preparation for the holiday is, I wouldn't call it spring cleaning, because we're not actually cleaning for dirt. We're cleaning our house from the chametz, is what the Hebrew terminology is, because the verse in the Bible says you should not see or find any kind of chametz in your house. And we understand that to be um, any kind of leaven. So what is leaven? It's a strange word that I don't usually use in my normal sentence, in my normal day. Um, it is flour mixed with water that's given a chance to rise um, any kind of time. So any kind of leaven in your house. There, we're gonna look at bread, pasta, cookies, mm -hmm. flour, it's often come in contact with water, oats, right? Any of these things, your oatmeal, all that is gonna be, all of your, you know, Duncan Hines bake mix. Um, all of these items are going to be chametz. If you have pizza dough in your freezer, totally chametz. If you have chicken nuggets in your freezer, totally chametz, right? Because it's breaded with the breading. Oh. Sure. All of those things are chametz. You gotta get rid of all of it all of it comes out. We're not really gluten-free, but we're close to gluten-free. You essentially have to get rid of everything. And then in certain communities, we actually get rid of even more stuff because historically those items were, were stored at the same time and the same location as grains, or maybe looked like grains when you turn them into flour. So there is so much preparation. It can be extremely stressful because uh, at least within the community that I'm part of within Judaism, which is the modern Orthodox community or the Orthodox community, sure. we're particularly strict on all matters related to keeping kosher. And keeping kosher is very strict. You, it can be. It can be very strict, which means we actually have a whole other set of dishes and pots and pans, or we can make them kosher by boiling them or dipping them in boiling water, or there are different ways of like pouring boiling water on top of them. It is an extensive, challenging process. And it culminates with a search. We actually have to search our house. You have to search your car. You have to search your garage, you have to search your office if you have one, any place where you may, all these places that you have, your apartments, any place that you live where there may be chametz, you have brought chametz in your house, you gotta search and you have to make sure that you have eradicated it from your house. And it is only then we're finally free, but we're not really free because there's a lot more to do after that. But we have just not even talked about the holiday itself. We've just talked about the prep. That's all, this is all prep. It is rough. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, we had an experience where uh, we took searching for chametz a little overboard. And um, we had a massive bookshelf of kids' books. And you have to remember, like kids' books, you can fit a lot of kids' books into a bookshelf because they're so mm -hmm. thin. Sure. And we had taken them all out and fanned them open so that we spread every single page so that, God forbid, if any crumbs 
were hidden in that page, it would fall out and we could vacuum it up. But you have, we're thinking, talking about hundreds of books that we then pull out, now a mess <laughs> on the floor, and then we have to put it all back. <laughs> so have nightmares thinking about that. And then later we learned this was actually not necessary. This obsessive action was totally not required. You do not need to do that. You don't need to search for crumbs. What you're looking for is real stuff that you might actually eat. No one flips open a page of, oh yeah, this is a cookie crumb from like six months ago. Let me eat it. No one does that. That's not realistic. That's not life. So that is not necessary. But we're still in just the preparatory work. So uh, we have a Pesach Seder. So but by the way, so this this whole getting rid of the chametz culminates on the morning of before Passover, Passover Eve. And okay. it's customary for firstborns to fast because they were saved and not struck down in the plague of the firstborn, which happened that sure. evening. Mm-hmm. You know, Jewish firstborn sons have a custom to fast. And uh, we come and we have to stop eating at a certain time and we have to then burn whatever leftover chametz that we have that we haven't eaten ourselves, donated to other people, um, or found some other use for and burn it in a fire that's often on the street, and then we get rid of it, and it is gone from our possession. Now, the rabbis were, were certainly concerned about the economic hardship that this would cause some people, especially, like, can you imagine if you have a store, you have to get rid of all your, your products, you know, you, you just go out of business every year on Passover. So they came up with mm-hmm. a way to ensure that there was no technical violation of the law by selling your products. They weren't yours anymore. To a non-Jew, uh, yep. who would then buy them back from you afterwards. So this was done out of compassion for people so they wouldn't lose a lot of money. And this could be like hundreds or thousands of dollars that you could be out. So if if people can't afford to get rid of their chametz or to donate it, and that's too much of a costly burden, then they can always sell it. But in this ideal form, you're really not supposed to sell. You're supposed to really get rid of that's right. what the person we're talking about, which is how we practice. Mm-hmm. I learned a new thing this year. There's an online advice column called Ask a Manager that I enjoy reading uh, that is sort <laughs> of uh, HR advice for people who aren't in HR, which working for a religious institution comes in super handy for me because I was never taught any of that stuff. Uh, but she was answering a question about a Jewish business owner in Passover and explained uh, the tradition of selling your comments uh, to a, a neighbor. And one of the things that you have to get rid of as a part of that process is apparently whiskey, even if it's really, really nice whiskey. And so if you're selling that to your neighbor, there is also apparently a tradition of you have to let your neighbor taste test it <laughs> to make sure that it's good enough quality for them to want to pay for, you know, and I enjoyed that story. Yes, that's a cute story. But yeah, whiskey is a really big deal. Um, yeah. Beer as well is considered chametz. It's made out of grains. Oh yeah. So all of those items are. I remember there was a, a funny story with my own family. So uh, so Purim is always 30 days before Passover. So oh. last year or two years ago, my brother's parents, my brother's in-laws, had not had a chance to hear the story of Esther read. It was also during the pandemic, so it was very difficult. They had to hear outside, and like it was complicated of how to hear it because it was the pandemic, sure. and I mean, it's still the pandemic, but things are opening up a little bit more nowadays. May it continue to be so, God willing. Mm-hmm. They had come over so that I would read it for them. So I read through the, scroll, the whole scroll of the story of Esther, and they had left a, a, a bottle of double black Johnny Walker, like a full-size bottle, which was okay. very sweet of them. You don't drink a whole lot of alcohol usually, but I'm not opposed to it. But the big problem was he dropped off 30 days before Passover. That means I had 30 oh, days goodness. to finish it, which is way nowhere near enough time. I need like a year to finish a bottle like that. Um, yeah. So basically we had, um, I, I, I met all of my, my neighbors. 
said, hey, come on over. We, I need to finish this. Can somebody help me finish this? So we just pulled over chairs. We were all outside because it was the pandemic and we couldn't be indoors. So we all just drank his bottle of double black Johnny Walker. Nice. A friend of mine who's a pastor in on the Upper West Side in New York actually was the person who bought someone's home last year, I think. That like, and she posted about like the tradition and stuff, and so that was that had been the first time that I had heard of that. Um, but that it's a, nice. it's a unique honor for non-Jewish people to be selected and trusted with business or home or whatever it is that they're buying from Jewish people for Passover. Yes. Um, now nowadays it's like we've built in so many protections. So, I mean, it is mm-hmm. um, it is certainly a legal act, but non-Jews are not spending all that much money to do this, right? Because they they're they're right. putting it down a down payment and then the rest of the bill comes due at the end of Passover and they can elect to not, you know, to not continue the transaction and then the Jew can then buy it back from them, which is what happens. So where were we? We uh, are... The morning of Passover, I think. Ador- yes, exactly. So we have burnt our chametz. It is finally done. It is out there. Um, Many firstborns are fasting or figuring out some loophole to get out of the fast. And <laughs> then the night of Passover comes. And it is that night where we have the Passover Seder. So the Passover Seder is a fantastic, fun evening. Um, it is so filled with ritual and structure. It's wild. So there are four cups of wine or grape juice for those who shouldn't or can't have wine. And then there's also plenty of matzah that you're eating and you're dipping food into salt water and you're having bitter herbs. There's like this whole ritual event that there's actually so much eating that is ritually based that by the time you actually get to the meal, (laughs) you're totally full. You're totally full. It's like, I have no more room for this. And then, by the way, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder before, you should know that you probably missed the end because right? like the, the there's two thirds of it then you have the meal and then most people leave unfortunately they miss they sort of like walking out after in the middle of a movie but that's what they do they don't realize that there's actually a whole left a whole third of it left so this was actually happening in my family all the time we have these big uh passover seders of like 30 40 people um and you know, it'd be a lot of fun. Everybody would take a turn reading a passage. We'd go around the table. We'd read in Hebrew or in English, whatever people are comfortable with. We'd hopefully have a chance to talk about it, etc., etc. And then we get to the meal. Everybody's eating. It's time to go. Everybody leaves. And that's like just my family, just like my immediate siblings and parents and whatnot. And like, where is everybody? Like, there's a whole thing left. And then we would, at this point, be way overtired, a little punch drunk from the little bit of alcohol and sugar that we've had. And then we would be giggling and laughing through the whole and would be so much of the joyous part of my memories as a child uh, would be this, this latter half. Sure. But the core piece, besides for all those rituals, is really to tell the story of the Exodus. And telling stories of the Exodus is super important because it is our history. So I believe this is sort of like the formation of my people and the Jewish mm-hmm. So many people sort of see Passover as a holiday of freedom. And it certainly is. There's no denying that. But it's not just about the freedom per se. It's really about the beginning of our national story as a people that is not in bondage. And that becomes crucially important to our own identity. I don't, I can't uh, source this for you directly, but I remember hearing about a study that took place, I want to even say in Florida, I'm not sure where, maybe in New York, I'm not sure. So it was, uh, so a sociologist was interviewing a bunch of first graders and I believe it was June, 2001. 
and interview these first graders to get a sense of their own resilience to issues and identity and got a chance to interview them. Sure. Fast forward a few months, September 11th came yeah. and there was this national trauma that impacted everybody in our country and many around the world. And these sociologists, these researchers went back to these same kids. And a little while later, after, so, you know, so, so I forget it was October, November, December, something like that, and interviewed them again. And the kids who knew about their family history, knew who their grandparents were, knew where they came from, had these crazy family stories that they could hold on to, had a sense of who they were, were rooted in their family, were much better adjusted, much more well-adjusted in light of the traumatic events of September 11th than those who were not who didn't have that, who didn't necessarily huh. feel that rooted. So for us, for, for Jews, this is quintessentially when we became a people. And sure. mm. it becomes part of who we are. So this is essential. Like, who am I? Well, I'm a Jew. And where does my story start? Well, it certainly starts with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, and our matriarchs and patriarchs, right? It certainly starts there. But really, as a people, we start in Egypt, and we start in the exodus of Egypt, mm. and our return to the Holy Land, the land of Israel. So that is like that whole formation and storytelling and asking questions and digging into our history, making sure that everybody knows who we are, where we came from. And people even put on a show. Like we would, you know, we would take a little matzah, throw it over our shoulder. And this was, this would happen on my mom's side of the family who was uh, of Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern descent. And I, we would get asked in Arabic, right? Where, where are you going to? Where are you coming from? And what are you carrying? And this would be asked in Arabic because that was the Arabic side. And then there'd be the, the Ashkenazi side who would then ask the questions in Yiddish, right? Because all these cultures would be intermingling together. But essentially it was, we have to know who we are. And that becomes so important. I think I once heard a Jewish rabbi uh, summarize the vast majority of Jewish holidays as they tried to kill us. We're still here. Let's eat. They didn't. Yes, I heard is they tried to kill us. They didn't. Let's eat. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then there are a bunch of other Jewish holidays, which are, they tried to kill us, they did, so we're not eating. Yeah. Those are the fast days. I'm curious, Maurice, what your favorite, you, you've talked with a lot of excitement about various parts of Passover, but what are like the favorite parts of Passover for you and for your family nowadays? Well, I can tell you what my favorite parts are not. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's easier, sure. We can start with the negative and then get to the positive, right? Uh, which is the form okay. of a chaplain. That's the way chaplaincy works, right? You know, <laughs> dig into the pit, go talk about the grief before we get to the positive. That's the way to go, right? So certainly the preparation is very stressful, the cleaning, and, and like the stakes are very high. Uh, one of the things about being an Orthodox Jew is we understand and under, we see the Torah as written with sanctity and divinity. So if that's the case, then we're really, really not allowed to have chametz. It's like a big, big deal. I don't want to scare anybody with the scriptural verse, but it's a big deal. So we really can't have it. So it is a lot of work to figure out, okay, where, and as if you have, I have, we have kids, we have kids at home. So like, I can tell you food can get everywhere, anywhere. And and it just, Mm -hmm. it goes in places you never imagine. Like, and then, but we have to check all those places. So we'll do the best that we can and we will, and we'll try, but it just, it becomes this stressful piece of all the things we have to do. And, and then, making sure that our kitchen becomes not just kosher, but now kosher for Passover, which has its own sets of, of laws and requirements. And the holiday comes itself. And mm-hmm. like the way that many people celebrate holidays in any kind of context, right? Getting together with family and having this sacred time of connection and and uh, uh, reunification with people that we likely haven't seen for a few, uh, few weeks or months. This actually, I'm super duper excited 
about this upcoming Passover because uh, I was a rabbi of a synagogue for 10 years. And um, mm -hmm. right after that, we decided it was, it was a good run and I was ready for uh, a shift. So we came to live in New Jersey um, and that was the summer of 2019. And I was, we were looking forward to the upcoming Passover, which was going to be the first Passover I was going to spend with my family. The very first one in 10 years, because oh, as Orthodox Jews, we can't drive cars on the holidays or on Shabbat. So I couldn't like right. see them and they were over, you know, my parents were in one part and, you know, the extended family, like everyone sort of separated and like, okay, we're going to get together. This was going to be the year. And then the pandemic came. Uh, so then we were, oh. and then like, no, we still have pandemic, the pandemic still has to come. So finally this, this year is going to be the first time that I'm going to have a Passover Seder with my parents and extended family and siblings and whatnot. And what's crazy is I, I actually have like, you know, we're blessed to have four children. My oldest is 13. And like, my parents have oh. never really had a Seder with them, which is like crazy. And that's crazy because embedded in the Seder is so much about teach the children. Children yes. should ask mm -hmm. questions, learn, challenge. We're okay with that. We want to know about this. Know your history, know where you're from. And like, they actually haven't had any any satyrs with them. Fortunately, my in-laws are uh, been able to come frequently because they have different responsibilities. They they weren't hosting extended family, so they were able to come to us at the synagogue for every other year, and they shared space with mm -hmm. my sister-in-law and brother-in-law who live elsewhere. So great. So looking forward to family. So looking forward to the the rituals, the customs, the practices, the conversations, the singing, the goofy. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that we do is we try to fit. Some of the later psalms when everyone has left and it's just the core folks who want to stay we try to fit these psalms and other prayers in with tunes that don't fit at all so like we'll send something, send something like ridiculous like take me out to the ball game or the battle hymn of the republic <laughs> and we'll try to fit that into the prayers either in english or in hebrew and like it's just goofy it's goofy and it's funny <laughs> and it's it's fantastic so well, and speaking of, I have to imagine that over the course of thousands of years, the traditions of how Passover have been celebrated have changed somewhat. I, I mean, I have to imagine that the cleaning in advance must, I, w I would hope it would be easier now, given modern technology. No, I'd say it's much but... harder. because <laughs> Oh, because you know about so much more of the mess. Well, no, I would say this. That, that, listen, I don't know a whole lot about the architecture of ancient Israel homes, but I'm guessing that many of the homes that some of us live in are much bigger oh, than, that's fair. than the other mm -hmm. homes. So you have so many sure. potentially, right? Obviously, not, you know, there's a uh, you know, affordable housing crisis anyway, and there's a lot of unhoused well, people. Yeah. So, but understanding all of those caveats and issues, but many people live in far, far bigger homes and with the ubiquity of so mm -hmm. much more food, obviously with understanding that not everybody is privileged as such, right? In ways that, ancient Israelites were not, they did not have yet. So yeah, it, was, it was much, it was much different from them. So, but I would say the big difference is, is the Paschal lamb, the, the yeah. sacrifice that was brought to the temple. So it, it, as the verse versus state, we're supposed to go up to the temple and bring a sacrifice and then all eat together. Like you were supposed to join and have different families join together. You couldn't really do it in isolation. This Passover is supposed to be a holiday where you group together with other people and other yeah. family groups. So, and then you sort of split a lamb together with two or three families and you get it and you all eat it together and you go to the temple. So all of that practice has, has not been, we haven't followed that. We're not allowed to follow that. There is no temple standing right now. Mm -hmm. There's a fervent hope at some point that the temple will be rebuilt in the coming of the Messiah. But when that will be, we don't know. So we will continue to wait until that happens. Sure. Mm. So do you not 
have a Paschal lamb then, or do you just have it for the smaller groups at synagogues? What happened to the lamb? No, no, there's no, there's no lamb. There's not only is there no lamb, but you're not even, we're not allowed to have roasted lamb as part of our, even if you cook it in the oven in your house, in wherever you might be, it's still prohibited because we can't have anything that looks like it. Because we, we don't have the Paschal lamb. We're not, we don't have the temple. We can't bring the sacrifice um, or the sacrifices. That's not allowed right now today. So sure. it is not practical. So, okay. Yeah. Sure. But we do have like a shank bone that we're supposed to remember. Remember. Okay. We'll have sort of yeah. that, that memory of the, the symbolism of it. Yeah. So one of the traditions that I've been delighted to learn about uh, is the option to write or rewrite the Haggadah, the story of the Exodus, so that it better suits different cultural settings or different groups of people. And I was wondering if you have any favorite or especially unusual ones that you've heard of uh, or participated in. So, yes, I would say, I would, I, well, let me, let me qualify that. Such a great question because the Haggadah or the Haggadah, depending on if you're of Eastern European or Middle Eastern descent, different ways to pronounce these words. So is has so many commentaries, so many books, so many ways to fit themes into. There's like a Harry Potter Haggadah. A colleague of mine just wrote a Seinfeld Haggadah. You can find a Haggadah, uh, whatever the theme, whatever you want, right? Like a communist Haggadah. You can find a capitalist Haggadah. You can find anything you want, any, any kind of Haggadah you'd be interested in. They probably have it. Everybody wants their own. If you are a rabbi and you're going to write a book, you're probably writing one of two books. Either you're writing commentary on the Bible, on the Torah, or if you're not doing that, you're writing a commentary on the Haggadah. Those are likely your two first <laughs> options. So many people sure. have a commentary on those. It's kind of amazing. So do I have any personal favorites? Back in the day, I think this whole great undercurrent of a story of like how uh, Maxwell House took over as the main Haggadah for decades, years ago. It was like they, gave, they tried to get people to buy their coffee and they gave you a free Haggadah in the process. And somehow it became so ubiquitous and everyone has a Maxwell House Haggadah, that old translation. Anyway, nowadays there are some fantastic artistic Haggadahs which, with modern readings. The text is still the same, but there's all this commentary and additional elements that are written in there that provide so much fantastic insight. So nowadays you can, like one of the Haggadahs that I particularly like, has um, narratives and has commentary from people from the civil rights era or uh, freed enslaved people from our, from our country here and, and quotes from them, be able to connect what freedom might look like and connecting to other sources of oppression. So there's, there's a countless right. number of ways and it's such a fantastic genre to move into. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So speaking of the many different Haggadahs, I imagine that there are Christians who have, as Christians, are want to do, latched on to this idea and have tried to do, I have tried to do their own Passover seders. Um, I know growing up, I didn't know it was a bad thing. And so definitely participated as a youth and young adult until I learned that it was a bad thing to do and it was cultural appropriation. So I'm curious, in light of those realities, what are some ways that Christians especially, but also anyone who's not Jewish, can be supportive during Passover and also not appropriative of Jewish culture? So it's a really, it's a really great question. So let me tell you a little bit about my thought process on this. So when I first, it took, I, you know, I grew up in a rather sheltered Jewish environment, even though I was in New York, so <laughs> lived in Brooklyn, <laughs> but 
as much of Brooklyn is, it's quite segregated in many ways. And there are all these many towns and communities. And I say towns, not as if it's a town, but like, you know, we call it like a specific yes. space, right? Like, um, so where communities cluster around and people often end up staying in many homogeneous, not everybody, but in these homogeneous groups. So I actually didn't know this was a thing. Then I discovered it was a thing. My first reaction wasn't actually anger. It was surprise and kind of excitement because, and this is not, not just, they're like, I mean, I remember when the Obamas would talk about their annual Passover Seder that they would have, and they would have the Maxwell House Haggadah that, that you know, the president that Barack Obama <laughs> would read from. To me, actually, it was, it was a couple of things. It was, I have mixed feelings about it. But the first feeling was, this is so cool, right? The mentality of being Jewish is, um, despite sort of the placement that we have in our in our country today, in this country, we carry a lot of historical trauma of being an oppressed people wherever we have gone throughout the generations, throughout the millennia. And right. the thought of like non-Jews liking Passover and wanting to celebrate it the way we celebrate it was so strange. Like that's so weird. Like we are the uncool kid, which to put it mildly, right? And you want to do what we're doing? There was something very attractive about that. Like, oh, wow, look, the president, the coolest man in the world, right? Barack Obama at the time, right? This was, this was like... Yes, I, I remember a time when the president was cool. Yes. That, that was he me. was. He was really cool at the time, right? I mean, things have changed over time. But okay, like he was really cool. Let's hold on to that moment. And, and his family would celebrate the Passover Seder. And they had, you know, with, with many of the customs that you would see at a Jewish Seder. I thought this was so cool. So cool. And then there was this other group of people who like felt they can get closer to Jesus. And I was like, wait, 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 what? What? What are you doing? What? Yeah. It was like this strange yeah. bit there. Like, oh, fascinating. Well, okay. But here's the thing, right? So much of Judaism has already been culturally appropriated. Right? So it's kind of, it's like, we're, it's sort of the, the norm, right? The fact that there is an Old Testament, right? is from the Jewish perspective, something that was culturally appropriated by Christians. Now, obviously there's a different perspective from uh, uh, from Christianity that, that I guess you could speak to more, obviously, because it's uh, more within your, your wheelhouse <laughs> and your faith background. So there's this sense of like, oh yeah, of course it's gonna happen. And to be very honest, right? Judaism also culturally appropriated from other Near Eastern faiths that aren't mostly around anymore. So we actually don't see that as well, as much as we can see this. So. Part of me is like, okay, they're doing it. But then as I thought more about what this holiday is about, it's a strange holiday to celebrate about. Meaning this holiday often thought of, oh, it's about freedom. And that is and that is true, right? The Israelites were slaves and then we were freed. And there is that piece of freedom. And, and there's a whole lot that I, that I think the Passover Seder can teach our country about how to, how to be accountable and how to navigate our original sins against the indigenous peoples mm. of this country and of this land and of mm-hmm. black people. I think there's a lot that we can learn from those stories, from from the Passover Seder sure. with those stories, but it's also the story of our people. So it's sort of like, I don't know, imagine, <laughs> imagine like people getting together, um, sort of picture this, right? Imagine um, people in some faraway country, let me just pick another random country, right? Um, New Zealand. People in New Zealand gather on the table and talk about how their great-great-grandfather once had a soap factory in Syria and then came over, had a stop away in, in Haiti and then came to America and like went through Ellis Island. And you're like, why are you, why are you celebrate? Why are you New Zealand person celebrating Maurice Applebaum's personal family history 
as part of a ritual. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, this is someone else's family history. Why would you celebrate someone else's family history as if it's, it doesn't make any sense to me? Like, it's just so bizarre right. for it to happen because it's not just about freedom. It's actually our story. It's the story of how we came to be a people. So through that lens, it feels kind of strange. And that's, I guess, where the cultural appropriation can be found. So I would say there are those three lenses that I would just put them in. Um, and not all of them is bad. So I, it's in that complicated space. Does that make sense? Yeah. I do believe that Judaism has something to tell, to tell, has something to say, has something to contribute to our society. I don't think it's the only way to salvation. I think you don't need to be Jewish. I think most people are totally fine according to the Jewish perspective. <laughs> most people are going to heaven if they follow the seven Noahide laws and they don't need to become Jewish. There's no issue with, with conversion. They don't need to. In fact, if someone wants to be Jewish, we're like, you really don't want to, trust me, buddy. You don't want to be Jewish. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. There are way too many laws. Listen, you can continue eating at McDonald's. You can continue having bacon. I can't have that. Why do you want to give that up? Just enjoy life and you'll be totally fine. We'll both be, get to heaven, hopefully. Else I'll get there. But you for sure will get there. I know you're going to get there. As long as you keep these seven basic moral code laws. Yeah. And I think the piece that I know in my experiences with Christian satyrs is that it like it might be similar to a satyr that you would do today but then at the end for the fourth cup is when it veers and it goes into and jesus did this other thing and that part is the like taking from judaism this beautiful and rich ritual and then being like and then jesus the messiah came in and did this thing and it's like so it, it's like a, a buildup and then just like, but actually let's erase all of Judaism because Jesus, which is not how I experienced like the actual history of Christianity, um, especially the beginnings of Christianity, yeah. but definitely is a big thing that Christians have tried to do multiple, right? Like, I don't need to tell you this, but Christians have a really bad history of anti-Semitism and actually like yeah. trying to kill Jewish people. And so when it's those places where I'm like, yeah, the Passover is great. And if I were ever invited to a Jewish Seder, I would be super excited and I would go. I went to your Shabbat dinners multiple times when we were doing CPE and they were fantastic. And it was a great opportunity for me to learn and to be in community. And I think one time to like turn all the lights on because I wanted to see people when all the lights went off, which was like this part of this beautiful thing of like, oh, I can turn lights on because I am Christian and I want to see people and you all might benefit from it. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's the piece where I think Passover gets is the most complicated for Christians to do because they take it and then they use it as a way of erasing a lot of what it is about and putting Jesus on top of it. Which is the like right. problem, right. super problematic part. Yeah, that's the part that get, that's a, that's more uncomfortable. Exactly. It, there is something, and I highlighted this before. Uh, I, I should I noted it before. There's something instructive that our country, the United States of America, can learn from the story, the Passover story, the Exodus story, and mm. right, like if the Israelites received reparations, right, and that was not a thing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it didn't, and that, and there's also this uh, sense of justice and accountability and needing to take responsibility that Pharaoh and the Egyptians never really did. And had mm. they done that initially, taken some responsibility, had some accountability, then there would have, the Exodus story could have been very different. 
but it wasn't. Sure. So there was so much more punishment. So I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, in, if I were to use, as we talked before, like, can this not just be the story of my personal people's history, but be relevant to the masses in some way, then not just for Christians who can connect to Jesus more closely, but even for the United States of America in a very secular context, I think there's so much here that really can be picked apart and seen as a model for what our country needs to start doing and needs to, should have done decades and hundreds of years ago from this perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's part of why I was really excited when you mentioned the Haggadah that has like civil rights era quotes and stuff, because that's so connected for me to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights leaders, right, who talked about this exodus, this liberation from slavery, and made those explicit connections. And in fact, Jewish rabbis were some of the forefront non-black leaders and participants in the civil rights movement and so there is like the connection that you're making is not just you making it right it it is a connection that has been in this country at least for decades if not more yeah totally so are there any other things that you wish speaking of things that are potentially controversial and potentially not Are there other things that you wish non-Jewish people knew or did, particularly when it comes to Judaism and Jewish people? Well, uh, I think most people know that that we don't have horns. Do you know that? You know that whole thing? You know the background to that? No. No. Yeah. Mistranslation from Hebrew, isn't it? It's a mistranslation, exactly, exactly. And I don't remember the actual words, but right, carne or um, so the word Karen can mean horn. It can also mean like rays. And Moses came down mm. from Mount Sinai with rays. But anyway, unfortunately, a very famous artist and sculptor, I think Michelangelo, created Moses with horns, and that was something ubiquitous. So we don't have horns, but I don't think any of your oh. listeners think that we do. So that was more said in jest of historical things. Yeah, yeah. I would say this. This is something that's really important. I think your listeners to know about Jews. And that is that, and we've actually seen this arise a little bit with Whoopi Goldberg's comment, um, and that is that mm. Jewish people, see, we see ourselves as a people. So you can have an atheist Jew, and that's not an oxymoron. And right. I, my sense is that, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, an atheist Christian would be an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian and also be an atheist. Those things don't work because you don't believe in Jesus and you're not really Christian. Or maybe you're, you know, some people will call you a heretic if you, they, if you believe in a certain way versus others, but there has to be something, right, there. But for us, Jude- Judaism is also a people. We are a nation. We see ourselves in a certain way. We, you know, you can call us a race. People call us different things, but we see ourselves as a family, as a tribe, as a people. And whether we're observant of our laws, and I hope many people are, if they can be, but just as an Orthodox rabbi, I got to say that, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but whether they are observant or not is not relevant to their Jewish status. If your mother was Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, then you're Jewish within the Orthodox context, and the other denominations have uh, other formulations of what that would mean. But Or if you've converted, then you're Jewish, and you're Jewish forever. You can't get rid of it. If someone decided to convert to another faith, then they would still be considered Jewish from from the Jewish perspective because they're a family. They're already in. You can't leave the family. Once you're in, you're not going. So um, I think that's super important because in many people's own mind, they think, oh, well, I could be my own faith and it's a personal decision. For us, it's not a personal decision. There's no personal decision here. You are who you are in, in a way that 
which is very different, but similar in a way that if someone is of a different kind of race, like you can't decide as a personal decision to change which race you are at. Like that's very, that's, it is a socially constructed label that is placed on top of you. And this too mm -hmm. is now a socially and religiously constructed label that is now placed on top of us that can't really be gotten rid of. So that is, I think, something that's important that I would, I would say that is not everybody knows about Judaism. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, especially in light of Goldberg's comments, but also the comments that were made throughout the previous presidency and continue to be made about yeah. Judaism and nationalism and all of the like things that are really complex, but then also can be boiled down into these clear, this is about a people, this is about a family, this is about a tribe in a really beautiful, yeah, you said that so beautifully. I love it. So now is our time to dive into our readings. Our first reading is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, though some people probably won't have verses 5 through 10. God instructs the Israelites to prepare for the first Passover in Egypt, which will mark the beginning of the year for them in the future. So one of the themes that I noticed in this passage is the idea of what counts and doesn't count as violence. So we have in this Exodus story, right, a clear naming of the potential killing of firstborns. For those who are Israelites, there is a way to get out of it. And for those who are Egyptians, there is not. And it's easy, I think, to look at that and say, ah, that's problematic. We don't want to kill firstborn children. But then to miss all of the other violence that has been happening up until that point. And so that's right. Like there's the violence of slavery and the enslavement of people. That is a level of violence that is deeper than this killing of firstborns that God is going to do. And so it, it reminded me of the moment in the last Star Wars movie, which as our listeners know, was not my favorite Star Wars movie, but Emperor Palpatine has come back and <laughs> is like, okay, Rey, like, come kill me and become the next Sith Lord. And Rey's like, no, that's so terrible. And then there's this giant fight and all of Emperor Palpatine's minions are killed and that's fine. And it's just like, what do we call violence and what do we not call violence? To add in a, a thought here, I <laughs> unfortunately I I uh, have only seen the original Star Wars and I think number one um, during the pandemic we were debating which series to start and my girls picked Marvel and my son wanted Star Wars <laughs> and I have and the little one didn't get the vote so it was two on one and the Marvel one so we watched all the Marvels instead of the Star Wars. But Fair. I will say though that the the piece I think that is crucial in understanding the killing of the firstborn and the violence that took place beforehand was the infanticide, which really is the, the beginning mm -hmm. of the slavery story, right? In the very beginning, chapter one of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh commanded that all of the Jewish baby boys should be thrown in the river. And not only should they be thrown mm -hmm. in the river and it should they be killed, but the river, by throwing them in the river, got rid of the evidence because then the, the river flowed. So you didn't actually right. see mm -hmm the babies anymore so there was like this gaslighting event that also took place and no one actually had to face mm. the fact that there was all these babies who were killed because now they were gone you didn't see them anymore they flowed downstream and they were gone so gaslighting mm -hmm. took place the egyptians never had to really face the moral quandary of 
this murder because they have to see it and they have to look at it. It was gone. It was freed from them. They washed, They literally washed their hands from it. Um, and now this becomes, particularly because they didn't listen and they didn't let us free, it becomes retribution for that, mm. for that sin. So violence, it definitely is. And uh, it's one of the Jewish ways of understanding is that this is why humans can't dish out punishments like this. And only God can, because this is well beyond our ability to do so. We should not be engaging in this kind mm. of violence and this kind of uh, vengeance, but only God can. Yeah, I have never made that connection. It feels ridiculous that I've never made that connection between the firstborns at Passover and the baby boys, because I love the story of Shifra and Pua and the midwives and the moms and the sisters, right? Like all of the people who are all women and keep Moses alive, right? I love that story, but I never tied those two together. And that makes so much sense. Yeah, that connection. And what's amazing about that story is, although there's some debate between rabbinic scholars, right? It's very likely that those women were actually Egyptian women, non-Jewish women, right? It was the resistance, the women who were, resi- the Egyptian women who resisted, and obviously the daughter of Pharaoh, right? These women who resisted mm-hmm. this evil, right? They get put, they're, they're the ones who are, are really given first chapter of billing in the story, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. really two chapters. The other piece within this text that I, that I think is, is worthwhile that becomes important to us as Jews, that is probably... Uh, missed by others is the second sentence in the chapter. This mm-hmm. month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So this is important in two ways. One, it is actually the first commandment given to the Israelites that we have to make a calendar. Mm-hmm. We have to order our time, which then dovetails into the next element of why this is significant. When someone is enslaved, they have no control over their own time. It's not theirs. And this was the first time that we actually like able to control our time. And that becomes crucial. Now time is important to us and we've factor time. Sabbath is a is holiness within time, as Heschel says, right? And all these holidays that take place that become factors of time. So we have not only sanctify space, like holy spaces, like the temple, let's say, or synagogues today, but we are sanctifying time as well. And to do that, we need to actually have control over it. We need to make a calendar. And that is that second verse in this chapter, which is ultimately, arguably, the first commandment that's given to us as a nation, as a people. That's fantastic. I love that. And of course, that commandment was taken on by the math nerds. (laughs) And we've come full circle, okay? (laughs) Indeed. And then in verse four, we read, if a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. This particular line in verse four, I love, and I particularly love it in light, Maurice, of your experience of Passover in the pandemic, because it's God creating like pandemic pods, right? Like, this is the group and this is about the size that is safe. And so you all share this lamb and you all share this lamb. And so I just keep like, once you told your kind of story and chronology of having not been able to have Passover with your whole family for years now, this, this was just like, this is so like perfect. Even in an ongoing pandemic, we have found ways to be safe about this. But we have found ways to create pods of people who can care for each other's safety and still celebrate this liberation, which is awesome. 
Oh, my, OMG, I have to tell you, like, modern-day Jews read that story of Passover in that very first year of the pandemic in such a different way because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The idea of, like, you can't leave your house, there are certain people you have to quarantine with, there is death outside mm-hmm. your door. Like, wow, it totally blew so many of our minds that first year of, like, oh, we appreciate this in a totally different way than we had previously. Yeah. Sure. Just to back up what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 14, we read... This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. And at this point, I spent a few years of my life before streaming was a thing during the first years after I had moved out of my parents' home, where I had a very select collection of DVDs that I could watch. And I usually couldn't afford cable, and so I rewatched some of these D- DVDs many, many times. And one of them was the TV series Sports Night, which was the show that Aaron Sorkin did before West Wing. And it lasted about two and a half seasons, and it's a extremely 1990s TV show, but also fairly adorable in some ways. And it has a very strong thread of found family, of the people who you care about, the people you're with, are not necessarily the ones you expect, but you are important to each other and you do back each other up. And at one point, the show is going to happen on Passover because they're a TV show and it's New York, and of course they're going to overlap with other uh, holidays at various points. And there are four or five characters on the show who are... Uh, Jewish, and they decide to get together and have a Seder uh, between a couple of the meetings that they usually have that night and invite anybody who wants to show up. And one of the characters, played by Joshua Malina, or writes a new Haggadah uh, for them to use uh, and specifically casts various people from the show uh, in those roles. Uh, And Moses is, of course, played by Robert Guillaume, who unfortunately died in 2017. But he has a marvelous voice for it. You may also know him from being Rafiki in The Lion King. Or he had uh, dozens of other smaller TV roles. He was also a character in... uh, He he did the voice for Eli Vance in the Half-Life 2 video game. He was especially remarkable in this show because there was a bit in the middle of the show where he actually had, like, the actor had a real-life stroke and then came back from it and kept acting and was willing to be on the show as his character had had a stroke at the same time. And they they were able to show his recovery process as a part of it. He was willing to be that open about it. But this episode where they have this Seder and they invite uh, the non-Jewish people and uh, have to explain a few things... It's a lovely way of acknowledging found family. But I think of that episode every time that I read anything that's even connected to the story of the Exodus now. (laughs) And so it's a a lovely memory to have come back. I love that show. So what's interesting about that verse 14 that you read, though, is that it's fascinating to me that um, the scripture that you read stops there because um, (laughs) that's not the natural break in our formulation, right? There's... It continues onward for with an hour break. There's like different ways to break it up, and certainly as as you know, the the chapters and verses that we all use are not of Jewish origin but of Christian origin. But we have other breaks, and our break this section goes until verse 20, and mm. the verse that follows this directly, the one that you just read, is referencing some of the laws. Right, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, 
On the very first day, you shall remove leaven from your house, and whoever eats leaven from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be, well, we're not going to talk about that, remember, we don't talk about uh, Bruno, nor do we talk about uh, harsh commandments in the, in the Jewish Bible. So anyway, that was that verse that follows right afterwards, which was sort of fascinating because that, as I opened up, is so much about my memory and my experience of the holiday, which actually, oh, right over there is where it stops, which makes sense also from your perspective, why that's not part of it. That's not part of your practice. Sure. Yeah. I want to give a fuller picture. And then our second reading for this episode is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. The institution of communion, the Last Supper, which proclaims Christ's death until Christ comes again. So one of the themes for this passage, this is Paul describing a very special meal. It is a particularly special meal for Christians, but it's also a complicated meal. So this is a Jesus is about to die kind of meal, but it's also a Jesus makes us all community and the body of Christ meal. And I most of the time love to celebrate the like the joy of the meal, which is why I love first communions when kids like run. I've had kids like dance up and down the aisle to receive their first communion. And it is glorious for them to be excited about bread and usually juice. But it also has this other meaning, particularly in Holy Week, where it is the day, it is the last meal that Jesus is going to eat before this whole process of trial and state killing. And so it reminded me of the Reaping Day in the Hunger Games series, where everybody has a little something extra, a little something special for that meal, because you don't know if everyone is coming home again. You don't know if this will be the last meal for that group. Good books. Good movies, but really good books. Yeah. What's fascinating to me as I read this is, at least in the translation that we have here, that mm -hmm. embedded in this was the betrayal. Right? That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never sort of thought of communion and the Eucharist, right, and the Last Supper, all those pieces, you know, different traditions call them differently, things, but as it's so closely embedded with betrayal, it's sort of fascinating to me. Yeah, mm -hmm. sort of putting that there. The other piece also that jumps yeah. out to me is the loaf of bread. I don't know what the translation is in the original Greek, but it, you know, given that Jesus was a religious Jew, and if this did take place on Passover, I guarantee you he was not eating a <laughs> loaf of bread. Yeah, the Gospels all disagree. They all agree that Passover was near to when Jesus died and rose again, but like the exact date varies from gospel to gospel. And so First Corinthians may have been taking from one gospel, but not all four of them. So. Yeah. yeah. I Because why have one version of a story when you can have four? Exactly. I noticed that this time as well, where I was like, loaf of bread. Really, Paul? Really? What you mentioned about betrayal, I want to return back to real quick because there has been a tradition and I have actually stopped naming the betrayal in the story when I do like the words of institution because that has been one of the things that again taken out of context Judas has become for Christians a symbol of Jewish betrayal of Jesus and so Kay and I talked about this recently of like it doesn't actually make sense to like blame Judas necessarily because there's like all of these complicated reasons why Judas does what he does. And there's multiple betrayals of Jesus in 
this story, but the one that is always focused on is Judas. We don't focus on how Peter denying Jesus is a betrayal, how falling asleep when someone is in desperate need of support is a betrayal. Right? Sure. We only focus on Judas, and so then that becomes a justification, has become historically, I think less so now, but um, has become historically a justification for anti-Semitism, which we are not about. Right. Um, Absolutely. Although I do include the betrayal in the telling the story myself, but I'll get into why later because I actually comment on Judas once we get to the John text. So, <laughs> And then in verse 25, we read, in the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this, this new covenant that Jesus is creating with like Jesus and everyone really is like how it becomes known in Christianity, at least, particularly with the cup, is a very different type of covenant or, or relationship or agreement than what we might experience at the beginning of Battlestar Galactica, for example, between the Cylons and the humans, where the humans keep showing up year after year and the Cylons never show up until they come to destroy the planets and humanity and all of those things. So at least this one is like a renewal every, for me, ideally week, but yeah. And then in verse 26, we read, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, and throughout the New Testament, there are statements like this about proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again, or Christ's death being a, a sort of like timeless event, uh, Christ constantly being both with us and also coming uh, or on the way. There, There's this like very fuzzy concept of how Christ exists in time because, you know, that's what happens when you're God. Time doesn't really apply to God the same way that it applies to us because when you're God, some rules just don't work the same way. And it, this particular phrase makes me think of the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, which was a very popular phrase in a lot of monarchies or various versions of it, of uh, how to both announce the death of the previous monarch and then announce the ascension of the next as a sort of way to keep a sense of continuity and uh, make sure that the people knew that, yes, we know what's going to happen next. We're, we're not like at a loss. Uh, we know how this is going to work now. It was last properly used in the United Kingdom as an announcement in January 1936 when King George V was succeeded by his son, King Edward VIII, who of course later abdicated. That was a whole mess. It will very likely be used when Queen Elizabeth dies, uh, a slightly different version, the Queen is dead long live the King. It, it assures an immediate transfer of power, but there is also this weird relationship that it has with, you know, life and death and time of the king is dead, long live the king. There's there's a certain fuzziness there. And proclaiming Christ's death until he comes isn't a transfer of power. Jesus is God and did die, but is not now dead. But it still has that sense of both and, that fuzziness about time to it. Uh, Jesus was dead and is alive and is on the way all at the same time. Um, yes. And as a former philosophy major, that's the kind of thing that makes my head hurt, but I also find endlessly interesting. So, Our final reading for this episode is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 and 31b through 35. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the duty of a slave, and commands them to love as he has loved them. 
One of the themes in this passage was the idea of all or nothing thinking that Peter in particular has, where it's, no, Jesus, don't wash my feet. Oh, if you have to wash something, then wash everything. Peter is very much an all or nothing kind of biblical character. And it reminded me of the Matrix, the original trilogy especially, where Neo either is the chosen one or is not the chosen one. And there's no other possibilities. It is this, as I say frequently, false binary of yes or no, all or nothing. And the reality is there's a lot more in between room, right? Jesus is literally washing the part of your body that gets the dirtiest. It's the one that is in the most need of washing. You don't need to wash everything that frequently. But also, Neo is not the only chosen one in that original trilogy. And in the newest Matrix movie, it's entirely possible that Neo is in fact not the one, but Trinity is. So there's like a whole bunch of more complexities than just the false binary of all or nothing, the one or not the one. Sure. And then as we move into the verses, we read the second half of verse one, having loved his own, that is Jesus's own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And between this and verse 30, which this selection skips, but there's that whole bit in the middle that the selection skips, because I don't know about other pastors, but I tend to get horribly, if you do include that section, I get incredibly distracted by it, and I want to only preach on that, and frankly, you're not really supposed to on Monday, Thursday. You're supposed to focus on these parts instead. <laughs> and in verse 30, we learn that Judas received the Last Supper before he left. So Jesus fed Judas his own body, and it's implied his own blood, although that's not made as clear in the Last Supper before Judas left. And so between these two sections and also what we see of them elsewhere, we know that Jesus loved Judas. We, mm -hmm. we can say that with quite a bit of certainty. Given that uh, verse two, just after this, uh, claims that the devil was influencing Judas, we don't know really his motives for why he did what he did. There are other places that imply that God was kind of taking a hand in this because Judas had to do what he did in order for the story to play out the way it was supposed to. There's a lot of disagreements and uh, theories about, about Judas's motivations and all that. But ultimately speaking, we know that Jesus was betrayed by someone he loved. And while different parts of the New Testament scriptures tell us different things about what happened to Judas afterwards, Jesus never takes that back. Jesus never says that he hates Judas. Other people say that they hate Judas, I think, uh, once or twice, but uh, or that he was contemptible or anything like that. But Jesus never takes back his love for Judas. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, being betrayed by someone you love is incredibly painful. And on the other hand, sometimes you just can't stop loving a person who has betrayed you. Um, I, I had a personal experience of someone who I had a lot of admiration for and still do. And who I was also just, sometimes you're just fond of people. Like there's no <laughs> sane reason to it. There's no rational explanation for it. But you are just endlessly fond of this person. And they worked very hard to make sure I got fired. And I did. But... I can't shake the fondness and I can't shake the admiration because they're still the same person. And so Lutherans would call it, there's this weird tension that you're in, uh, that Jesus is in with this. And that's why for me, it's important to, t to include the part of Jesus being betrayed on that night mm -hmm. in the story every time I share communion. 
but that's with the understanding that the reason why it matters is because that love is still there that love never stopped and that's an extraordinary thing and uh, for a more nerdy reference uh, it also reminded me of one of my dearly beloved uh, science fiction movies Jupiter Ascending which is very silly and good fun there's a character in that movie who betrays the others uh, in order to save his daughter's life and after he does this she's fine he does successfully save her life and they realize that they can't blame him for what he did. Like, under the circumstances, he really didn't have any other options. They couldn't have helped him in the same way that the people he betrayed these people to could have. And they basically, uh, there is this very short scene where they clarify, so you did this to save your daughter's life. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. We can't blame you for that. Uh, do you have, like, any other things we should know about, you know, major gambling deaths? <laughs> other things that would cause you to need to betray us again nope nope nothing like that okay great let him out let's go and that's the end of that conversation um channing tatum does a a lovely job of being very straightforward about it Uh, and then the guy who had betrayed them helps destroy the evil folks who caused all of this mess in the first place Mm -hmm. and i take from stories like that and i take from the bible that we don't know what the end of the story is we, we don't know what the end of Judas's story is. We haven't seen that play out yet. And there are all kinds of options available. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. In verse 15, when I was reading it, Jesus says, For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And this feels a lot like in Doctor Who, if the doctor was like, See, I did this thing that like requires two hearts or requires a TARDIS or something. So you just do what I did. And like, there's actually some stuff. And this is where, as pastors, right, we're told, well, ideally, we're told when preaching to never tell stories where I should never tell a story where I am the Jesus character. Because then it associates like pastors with Jesus and with God and with being better than lay people. And it's really problematic on a number of levels. But also like, yes, we follow Jesus, but also there are some things that like we just can't do like Jesus does or we just can't do like God does or we just don't want to be crucified. Like a million different reasons. But yeah, not all of us can actually just do the thing because we're human. So now it's time for our newest segment, Let's Make a Muppet Musical, uh, and let's talk about the verses that we've read for this episode and who would we cast uh, in the Muppets Musical. And of course, you can't have a Muppets Musical without having the occasional human actor. And I have to say that as far as the people we've heard about uh, today, uh, I was immediately cast back to watching Donny Osmond's production of... Uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And the guy who played uh, Pharaoh in that, I, I believe it was a direct-to-TV movie, was named Robert Torty, I think is how you pronounce it. And he does a fantastic job of Pharaoh basically, you know, doing Elvis. Um, and I am totally on board with him playing Pharaoh as often as he wants uh, in in the Muppets musical version. Uh, that would be fantastic. So That's fantastic. Maurice, what do you think? If I were to add in... It's been many years, I have to say, many years since <laughs> I watched The Muppets, but I was a big fan, and the Manovana was a favorite song. Um, but I did I did really love The Rainbow Connection, so if I'm going to think about that, especially that first story, I have to think that Moses and Aaron have to be Kermit and Miss Piggy. I mean, I think there's just no way around that, and those two were a team. 
I love that. And those two partner together, and you know, there was there was challenges in their relationship, but overall, they uh, they they got along well and they needed each other. Absolutely. That's fantastic. I really like the Kermit Miss Piggy combo for Aaron. <laughs> A couple weeks ago, with. Pastor Nakira, we talked about the vegetables, the singing vegetables being the Passover foods, which I still really love. Yes. Yeah. But I also like, so in my own gender bendy way, that was also when we talked about our Lent 5 episode. But I really love the idea of Janice from the Electric Mayhem band as Moses and as like specifically, not necessarily in the Passover story. But specifically in what you were talking about, Maurice, with Moses coming down the mountain with a ri- with rays of light, and so like seeing Janice as like having rays of light, and that's that's probably who I'd go for. Oh, nice, very nice. Yeah, and the rays of light would go great with her hair. Absolutely. Exactly. Awesome. So, dear listeners, let us know who you would cast in any or all of these roles. But in the meantime. Maurice, any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? I would say um, it's so wonderful to be back in conversation with you, Emily, and hear your voice and listen to your thoughtful ideas. And Kate, it's a pleasure to meet you, too. <laughs> you, Emily, you remain as thoughtful and as circumspect and as insightful as ever. So kudos to you for holding on to all those parts of your beautiful personality. We met in CPE that fateful summer in 2011, which was a lot of fun for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I actually never stopped. So I just kept going and going and going. <laughs> so um, if any of your listeners are interested in CPE, I teach CPE in multiple locations, but one of them is um, in person. If you live in New Jersey, you're welcome to come to Morristown where I teach. But uh, otherwise, I have an online CPE program through Emory Healthcare. So um, mm-hmm. it's uh, available to you wherever you might be and want to do CPE, which is uh, required for some denominations. And it's just a great experience. I have not continuously, but have recently done a CPE residency as well. So they are definitely powerful and meaningful. Well, we are so glad to have had you with us, Rabbi Maurice, and thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. had a lot of fun with you guys. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us as well. Uh, Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for Good Friday. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. And you definitely want that because we have a lot left in the uncut space. (laughs) You should totally go there. True. Absolutely. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Pox Vobiscum. Vobiscum what they said.